for half a century, WJPZ Syracuse has been the greatest media classroom on the planet. We've trained students from the 1970s to the 2020s on how to run a professional radio station. But the lessons learned and relationships formed go far beyond studios and transmitters. Taking a look back through the eyes of those who experienced it. This is WJPZ at 50. Welcome to WJPZ at 50. I am John Jagay. Today's guest is somebody I've been looking forward to having on for a long time. She's a very familiar face if you come to the banquet every year. Uh, She's brilliant. She's had a -a one-of-a-kind career. I can't wait to talk to her. We're going to call her class of 95, but there's a twist there that you'll hear later on. Welcome to the podcast, Jen Nice Connor. So great to have you. Well, thank you, Jag. And it's so weird after listening to so many of these, suddenly to hear like the intro coming my way. A little nerve wracking, I'll admit it. I was like I was telling you off air, I was so much more nervous to be a guest than I am the host. I've got the easy part. You've got the nerve wracking part today. But great. I promise to be nice. And I'll start with you where I start with everybody. Tell me about how you found Syracuse and then the radio station. We all have our, our origin stories. I feel like a Marvel character. Um, yeah, we all are. For me, I did not know what I wanted to be when I grew up, which probably still don't. I was trying to figure out where I was going to go to school, and I applied, as a friend of mine pointed out at one point, he's like, did you apply to the entire Big East? Which apparently I did. <laughs> um, R.I.P. the Big East. <laughs> R- yeah, R.I.P. Big East. Literally, I had a deposit in to both here, and you'll appreciate this, Boston College. That was okay. my other option. And my parents kind of sat me down. They're like, you seem to like this communications theater drama thing. You should go there. So that's how I ended up at Syracuse. And then I ended up at the radio station because that was sort of on my list of like, this sounded kind of cool. Unlike some of our other cooler broadcaster friends of the Detroit group of the Freedmans and the Meaches who all knew of the incredible radio station, I did not. Where are you from originally, by the way? I am from New Jersey, in case you haven't guessed by the cadence of my, my speech. I talk way too fast. What ended up happening with me was I was in that first weekend gaggle of freshmen that just kind of roam around the streets of Syracuse of the Hill. And I was standing up on top of Ostrom, if I remember right. And there was this guy with a really, really heavy Boston accent and a map. That would be one Stephen Donovan. And I looked over at him and we just got to talking. I'm like, you have a map. And that's how we started to become friends. And I said, (laughs) oh, well, one of the first things I want to do is go check out this radio station. He's like, I'll go do that. I was like, "Okay, cool. A couple days later, Stephen and I go wandering ourselves into Watson Hall and plunk ourselves into the middle of the radio station and literally open the door and say, hello, I'd like to be on the air. How are you? (laughs) Now, as luck would have it, the most potentially friendly person of all time happened to be on the air at that moment. That would be one Sharon Goodman. Be the good. So she, of course, like, come on in. Let's talk. And that was how it started. And from there, it just kind of took off. It's funny. I interviewed BB the other day for the podcast. So, oh, fun. Uh, so it, it has not been released at the time of this recording, but it'll be up by the time you hear Jen's podcast. I'll add you to the list. You and Donovan and Kid Michael Rock and Dion Summers. Yep. Uh, seemingly, she was the first person that all of you saw. So her contributions to the radio station with the great class of 95 are immeasurable. <laughs> this is very true in so many ways. So you get to the station and you meet BB. And then what happens from there with your involvement with the station, Jen? It's funny. I was kind of a slow starter. Like I jumped right in to be on the air and got my, you know, got my license. I remember hearing Dave Gorab and Larry Ross, Larry Rocket Ross. Dave was VP of programming and Rocket was chief announcer. And they were the ones leading all the training. And I remember thinking like, they they know everything. I'm never going to know any of these things. (laughs) Got cleared. And I got cleared for my illustrious 4 to 6 a.m. Thank you very much. Uh, But then I also had the good and also terrible fortune of being in the same class as one Dion Summers. (laughs) <laughs> who is the world's most gifted broadcaster of all time, who shows up at the same time. And actually, there's a funny story. Um, I heard someone talk about having Mike Tirico in their sports broadcasting class, yeah. where they all walked in, and they were like, well, we're done here. We're done. And that's, <laughs> that's kind of how I felt about Dion. You heard Dion, and you're like, well, all right, that was fun. I'm going to be in 4 a.m. for a long time. <laughs> so I started doing a shift, and I loved it. It was, but I didn't love the 4 a.m. part, but, and I was coming from Brewster Bowling, so you had to do that whole, like, trek across campus. Ugh. So I kind of started and stayed on and hung in there, but I didn't get really involved until the end of my sophomore year. I did a whole bunch of other things. I was doing UUTV. I pledged a sorority back in the Karasic days. You pledged that first weekend you went to school. So you literally were in a sorority by, like, week two of school. Oh, wow. And so I... Ended up joining Alpha Phi, which we actually have fellow Z89ers that joined from there, too. Uh, Kara Bowers and Ellie Lightman. Okay. They were two Alpha Phi's. 
I did a lot of things. So it took me a little while to actually get really involved. Where my turning point was um, sophomore year, I lived in Watson Hall, literally one floor above the station. Perfect. And I was starting to think about like what other things I could try. I hadn't quite found my groove. And they had senior staff announcements where you can go and apply and whatnot. So one of them was for operations, VP of operations. I was like, well, that seems like something I could do. I'm good with projects. I can manage. Maybe I can do that. And I went in, and as you know, it's a fairly intimidating professional process. And all these years later, I still think that was on par with some of the job interviews I've really had. <laughs> and I interviewed for the position and ended up getting it. And all of a sudden, I was sort of like, oh, gosh, I'm really doing this. And that was kind of where it started from there. So you were a VP of Ops your junior year? Uh, yes, going into junior year. Tell me about some of the things that were going on at the radio station at that time. You've got this all-star cast of characters in your class, the classes before you, the classes after you. Paint the picture of what it was like at JPZ, uh, 1993-4-ish. It was good. It was before the kind of difficult times got hit with the receivership and everything like that. We had just come off of a couple really good years. Like I said, you had people like Dave Goreb and Rocket and, you know, a whole cast of characters, uh, Kelly Foster, people who were running a really good business ship. And then from there, we kind of were taking the mantle. And I think we all kind of have that feeling. We're like, we're never going to be as good as like the people we followed. How could we ever do that? And hopefully we matched up somewhere along the line. But, you know, we were dealing with a couple of the same issues, um, old field, those kinds of things. But it yep. wasn't too crazy. Sponsorship was still good. Uh, back of the day, you know, Tony Rendo was in charge of coin, as it was known at that point in time. Mm -hmm. Ryan Raffensperger was the GM and he was an amazing manager. Um, I found some old papers the other day and found a memo from him. I was like, this is as good as any professional memo I have now in my like my real job life. Um, Dion was in charge of programming. Of course, his gift for that. We had a good group. There wasn't a ton of crazy issues. It was kind of a good middle ground time, I think. Friedman was there running news. Like it was just it was a good group of people that were I mean, it's always a good group of people, but it was a good group that was sort of inching the dial forward as opposed to making a huge leap at that point in time. I like it. Are there any names that you can think of that, uh, aside from the usual suspects, many of which you've already mentioned, uh, that come to mind that, that were instrumental or that you made relationships with at the time? She's going to her notes, ladies and gentlemen. She's going to her notes. Okay. I seriously, yes, I am. I, I'll admit it. Here are the notes. Um, <laughs> busted. This is why we're at Radio Jag, usually. Um, so a couple of funny things. People who are incredibly important to me in my life now, I didn't know at the time were going to be. Yeah. Good example of that is Adam and Kelly Shapiro. Sure. Uh, Kelly Foster at the time. Adam, the reason I've got to know Adam, Adam was on the Crazy Morning Crew when I was doing my 4 to 6 a.m. shift. So Adam, I'd have to go let him in. And I didn't. He was a senior when I was a freshman. I didn't know him from, well, Adam. <laughs> and I would go open the door and Adam and my exchange would be something. I'd be like, hey, how are you? And I'd hear, ah, mm, yeah, it's early. And that was about our full exchange. <laughs> so years later, for the, for the alumni association, we become friends. You know, he and Matt Friedman's another example. I got to know Matt through senior staff, but two of them became very, very dear friends, which I never would have known at the time. And, and same with Kelly. Another person that I should mention who, it's so funny because she's going to laugh when she hears this. She's going to be like, are you kidding me? Betty Keston yeah. was one of those people. Betty stayed that summer at the station going from, you know, sophomore to junior year, that kind of in-between period. She was staying there that summer. So she took the interim position for me. I learned so much of, about leadership from her because mm. she was someone who kind of took what was getting started and ran with it. And as I was trying to get my feet under me when I came back to school and took it over, she was just a really, really strong leader and just smart and really kind of helped me point me in the right direction of how to lead people better. So that was one of those lessons there. Um, Velarde was another one. Chris Velarde, uh, again, class of 95. Chris was always the kind soul who would fill in for my shift when I had some sort of conflict because I was doing too many things. Yep. And he would just look at me and be like, all right, fine. And he was also <laughs> amazing at it. So they traded up with that. Yes, I'm going down my list of notes here at this point in time. A couple other names just to mention or just people that helped me. Um, Jeff Dyson, who we haven't seen in a little while, but Jeff was a brilliant technical guy mm -hmm. who was always helpful in kind of coaching me and would sit up with me at ridiculous hours in the morning when I was still overnight. Same with uh, Rob Catron was another one. Like, I remember being on the phone with him, being like, how do I phone patch? There's so many. Like, I'm not going to, I want to do a laundry list of names, but actually, you know, another one too, and he's going to laugh because he doesn't remember, I bet you money he does not remember saying this, but when I was trying to learn how to be a leader at the station, and you learn by doing and screwing up and making mistakes and all the things. Oh, yeah. 
it was um, Kid Michael Rock. Yeah. Mike and I were talking at one point, and he said something that was super wise, which I still use to this day, which is why he's going to laugh at me. He had said something up to the effect of, just start doing and going until someone tells you to stop. Ah. And honestly, that's brilliant professional advice, which I still use 30 some odd years later. Don't wait for permission. Just start doing. Someone will tell you to stop if you've overstepped. And it's a much better way to do that rather than sit back on your heels and kind of wait for guidance. So there's, I'm sure we'll get to other folks in there, too. But there's a, there's a whole long cast of characters. So we teased this at the beginning. Uh, and you were telling me before we hit record that you are class of 95. I just lump you in with, you know, the all-star cast of characters from 95. But technically, you're not class of 95. Can you explain this for the masses? <laughs> sure. Um so I went in, I was supposed to be 95, and I went in for my degree check junior year, like we all do, wandered in Newhouse, give me a little document, whatever. And they looked and they went, um, you're done. <laughs> what? I had a, taken a bunch of AP, so like advanced placement classes in high school. Mm-hmm. And I did okay on some of them. I didn't, I wasn't like a rock star. And so not every college would have accepted it, but Syracuse was kind of like, yeah, that looks good. And so I had actually completed almost a full year before I walked into School? Wow. Not realizing. So what ended up happening was I kind of went back and I'm like, well, hold up. I am not ready to leave school yet. I got four years, man. I want four years. So I started to kind of finagle how I can make this all work. And what ended up happening was I applied for a grad program. I did my master's as my senior year. It only cost me like another three or four months up there in the summer. But then the other interesting part was it also had a lot more financial aid and I got like a graduate assistance ship. Oh. So I remember calling my parents to tell them that I'd come up with this crazy scheme and I think it was going to work. And I was expecting they're like, cool, you saved us half the price tag. Fantastic. What was so great. I remember my mom so clearly telling her this and she was all excited. I was like, great, I can save you some money. She's like, no, you're getting your master's. And it was never even something I would have thought of, but they were just so excited about it. So Yes, I have my master's in television and radio, which I finished up my senior year, which the poor master's students who were coming back and were all serious about it. I had senioritis as a master's student. <laughs> I don't recommend. Do not recommend because every time somebody wanted to go on some academic discussion that was going to go past five o'clock on the Friday class, I'm like, no, no, we're done. We're good now. Let's go. So <laughs> I remember uh, taking very few uh, credits my last semester so I could just, you know, major in Fagan's. So I, I understand. Exactly. Basket weaving, scuba diving, those things. So, Jen, you mentioned Friedman earlier. Mm-hmm. Friedman said about you, the range of communication skills she has needed for her one of a kind career path is pretty amazing. It has to, in some part, been influenced by her station experience. That Friedman's always insightful, man. <laughs> it's like he does this for a living or something. Uh, yes. And actually, it's funny. When I was thinking about this, one of the best things I learned, adaptability is maybe the most valuable career skill you can have, or at least it's up there, I think. And working at our station, working at WJPZ is literally a masterclass in adaptability on a daily basis. You don't know what's coming at you. You got to learn how to get along with everybody. You don't know what you're doing. And so you have to kind of figure it out as you go. And you have to learn to tweak your communication style as you go. And it's such a wonderfully terrifying yet safe environment in which to do that. And I mean, you've had this conversation. I've, I've heard it on the podcast you've had. Like so many people have had that feeling. The gift of Z89 to me is that it gave me the confidence to make mistakes. It gave me the confidence to try. It gave me the confidence of, sure, I'll figure it out. Like the ability to figure stuff out has maybe been the thing that has like come to my rescue more often than not in my career. Sometimes it gets me in trouble. Mind you, it does get me in trouble. But that is something I would say has been tremendously valuable. The other thing, too, and I keep telling Velarde we need to pitch a story in this to like Syracuse Magazine, but the vast number of entrepreneurs, yourself included, that have come out of our group entrepreneurship, and when I was, we'll get to business journalism, but when I was a business journalist, I loved writing about entrepreneurs because they're all believers and they believe what they're going to do is going to work. And the number of people who are entrepreneurial, and I don't mean just like going and doing a startup, I mean, entrepreneurial, where they see a problem, they fix it in their company, or they find a way to start something new for a nonprofit. We have so many people who have done that. I mean, you, Friedman, Meech, the list just goes on and on. I'm not thinking of people off the top of my head. So for me, back to Friedman's point, I don't know if I would have had the guts to kind of raise my hand and jump into things that I did 
had it not been for my experience at the station. So, Jen, we've talked about the things you've learned at the radio station, your time at the radio station, the amazing people you worked with at the radio station. But you've also gotten a lot out of the Alumni Association and all different generations of folks, right? Yeah. Well, and it's funny. It was a secondary gift that JBZ gave me. You know, I went to like a banquet, I think, when I was in college. I think I was with uh, Jordan Guayumi. I think I was his honorary date for that night. <laughs> I think it was like banquet eight because it was a long time ago. But when I was VP of operations that year, the person who was the PR director ended up dropping out. I forget that left school or what happened. But I had to step in to kind of help run the banquet that year. And thankfully, this guy, Scott Meach, had just taken over the Alumni Association. So I was like, okay, good to meet you. And that's where I suddenly <laughs> talk about skills you learn in life. That's where I learned event planning, <laughs> kind of on the fly. Because I was like, well, I don't know what I'm doing, but if you can help me. He's like, yeah. And so I got to know Scott. And then I didn't do a whole lot with the association right out of college for years. And part of the reason for that, and we can get into this when we talk career, but I worked in sports television for a good number of years. And I was working on live tennis, live professional tennis. And I always had a tournament that weekend. And I, so I could never come back. And it was like years that it, it was like five or six years I couldn't come back. When I started coming back, when I changed jobs, I started to get involved with the Alumni Association and Scott was still leading it. And there was a host of other people who had gotten involved who were doing a ton with it. You know, Jeff Wade, Dan Austin, and there was a whole cast of characters I'm trying to think right now off the top of my head. So by doing that, I got to know the earlier classes and I got to know them like on a personal level, much like what you've done with this podcast, but nowhere near as in-depth as you did. <laughs> but suddenly people like Brian Lapis and Danny Corson and Chris Godsick and people I'd always heard about. I actually had a chance to like chat with and do things with, and it became this like network. And then around the same time, there was a core group of people that just started coming back. And it sort of became just like a muscle memory reflex thing. Like we would just show up first weekend of March because mm -hmm. what else are you going to do to go to Syracuse, but go the first weekend of March. <laughs> so as a result of that, it became a big part of like, it was sort of my community outreach and giving back work, but I got so much out of it. And that was just more leadership lessons than that, just working with that group. Let's turn to your career, because I feel like my other part of show prep, besides texting Friedman, was spending about two hours reading your LinkedIn, because there's so much to it. You've had such an amazing career since graduation. Let's take a tour through it. Okay. Um, I don't know if it's amazing or just weird. Like, I actually, my, my Twitter handle is like office platypus, meaning like I don't fit anywhere. Like, I'm sort of one kind of animal, sort of not. Um, all right. So where that all began, I went to Syracuse to become a broadcast journalist, I thought. Mm -hmm. But then about a year in, I'm like, oh, I don't know if this is what I want to do. Hey, this television production thing is interesting. I was a television radio film major and I wanted to work in productions. So my first internship was with Jim Henson Productions. That would be better known as The Muppets. Which I want to hear about because that's so amazing. You know, I miss it's so I'm so bummed that in a way, I'm not bummed social media didn't exist then, but I have zero pictures. Like, oh. I have no evidence other, th other than my Kermit the Frog watch, which I still have. Everybody who works there gets a Kermit the Frog watch. That's which cool. I have saved. Yeah. So, yes, it was very funny because I was in their studio. Jim Henson at the time, he had already passed away, unfortunately, but his production company at the time, it's on the Upper East Side of New York in Manhattan. There was like two offices. One was like the office office, and then there was the production studio, which was in this brownstone. And so that's where I was for the summer. And that was a combo of production studio, photo studio, production area. And it wasn't very big, but you were kind of on top of each other. And what was really cool was like the people who had just come through there that you would randomly bump into and kind of do a double take. And like, for example, my first week, I think it was my first week, I'm going up the stairs to this brownstone. And all of a sudden I look up, I'm like, you're Frank Oz. Huh. He goes, yes, yes, I am. Like, Hi. That was pretty much my <laughs> eloquence at the time. That summer, I actually worked on a production. It was a show called Dog City. It was half animation and half live action puppets. So what was great was we filmed all the live action puppet pieces of this. So you got to watch the Muppets in action. Oh, cool. And I don't know if you've ever seen this, but everything is done up in the air. Like all of the sets are suspended on like stilts, essentially. Okay. About four or five feet in the air. And they all... I'm making gestures like you can see me podcast people just go with me. But so everything is done where they look down at TV monitors and they act with their hands above their head. And the funniest part about that is that Jim Henson and Frank Oz are both super tall. They're like six, four. So everything has always been set to that standard. So any other Muppeteer 
has to wear these like kiss moon boots. So they're taller. <laughs> and that's how they do it. So what was cool was that summer, the people that were acting in the show, the main character was Kevin Clash, who's the guy who plays Elmo. Mm-hmm. And so I'm like going to get coffee or whatever I'm doing for somebody. And I walk by and all of a sudden I hear Elmo. What is going on? <laughs> he was saying goodnight to his daughter. He was calling home. Aww. And if your dad's Elmo and they say goodnight to you, it's as Elmo, which I'm like, well, it can't be that in dad points. Oh, my gosh. It was a pretty wild place to work. Here's a good JPC not being fearless moment when I should have been still a professional regret. I got to sit in on potential Muppeteer training. Oh, my goodness. Right. This is cool. It's on the like upper floor there. And it's again, it's like a house. Essentially, it's not even like an office. It's more like a house. So all these people who are like coming to like learn how to be Muppeteers are there and is being led by Jerry Nelson. He's passed away since. But he was like New Zealand, the flying fish guy and a whole host. He's like one of the original people. So I'm sitting there all nervous, kind of in my little corner or whatever. At one point, he looks at me. He's like, do you want to participate? Great moment of professional failure. I went, oh, no, I'm fine. I'm just going to sit here. Yes, I had my moment. I had my shot to be discovered as a Muppet, and I let it go. Anyway, yeah, so I did that for the summer. It was one of those very cool places to, like, work, and I didn't appreciate it quite at the time as much as I do looking back on it now. So, I mean, it's hard to top working with the Muppets, but you've you've certainly (laughs) done that. I might have peaked. I peaked at 19. What came next? Because you've done so much. I don't want to skip over any of it. Well, oh, there's some, some that's worth skipping. Um, no, <laughs> so that was one summer. Then the next summer, I was walking through the halls of Newhouse, and one of my favorite professors poked her out of, the, out of her office. She's like, do you have an internship yet this summer? And I did not. I'm like, I do not. She goes, do you know about boxing? Like, I know nothing. I know nothing about boxing. She's like, great, come inside. <laughs> okay. So off I go, and she has a good friend who's part of HBO Sports. Now, with all sincere apologies to all of my dear sports guy friends who would be the first ones to be like, you don't know a baseball from a hockey puck. (laughs) You're going to work in sports? Yeah, sure. It's like, oh, figure it out. It'll be fine. I go through all the HBO interview process and a good professional lesson. There was one of the producers I got along with really well, and she kept calling me. She's like, going to take the job? You're going to take the internship? And I had something else that was like, see, maybe a little cooler. I think it was like working on real sex or one of those things. Yeah. And I was like, I don't know. And then she kind of kept calling and she was like the best mentor that summer. So I went to work for her. So I was on what was called East Coast Productions, which basically was like the production management arm for all of HBO Sports. So you helped everybody kind of get their stuff where they needed to go. As part of that, I that summer was sending out letters to people who were going to be runners because HBO held the rights uh, for Wimbledon at that time. So they would have the two weeks or, you know, the weekdays leading up and then NBC would take over. So I'm sending out these letters to people like me who are going to go be runners, which is glorified production assistant. Essentially, you get a lot of sandwiches and coffee and take out the trash and all that. Yeah. But I looked, I'm like, hold up. They're getting $100 a day, which was much more than my $0 a day. (laughs) And you get to go to England and go to Wimbledon? Yeah, this sounds good. So I graduate, no job, and I had reached back out to my one of my old bosses at HBO, and I was like, hey, you know that runner thing? How can I apply for that? She's like, oh, just send me a note. And she's like, also, do you have any friends that want to go? I'm like, yes, I do. I do indeed. So four of us, and this actually started, it was pretty cool. For years, this went on. I forget how many we got up to, but four of us from Syracuse that year ended up going as runners. We all rented like a super cheap flat and just kind of crashed. One of which was my then boyfriend, now husband, who has also been a, you know, beloved supporter of WJPC, even though he always looks at me like I'm crazy because he's not a radio guy. And then Kara Bowers, who I mentioned before, one of my sorority sisters and another friend of ours, Drew. Um, So the four of us go over there and we literally are runners for the two weeks. Um, The funniest part of this, part of Chris's job, my husband, who's not super tall, he got assigned to the studio. So his job was getting Martina Navratilova from the studio to center court back and forth. Mind you, Martina's like, I don't know, six inches taller than he is, but he was like the bodyguard. Oh, my God. (laughs) So anyway, so it was a great experience. It was a great experience to be on site for a live production. Um, Again, part of the reason it worked out well is my lessons from JPZ of adaptability and fearlessness and just kind of jumping in and doing what's needed. It was dumb things, but like I worked on the, it was like the highlight show and you had like log matches and do stuff like that. But you also had to like bring food when people needed it. And I was like, (laughs) I was just conscientious about it. At one point there was this really tough editor. Gosh, I can see his face. And they had all kind of set me up that I was going to screw this up. And I remember him being like, I need this at three o'clock. And so like 2.59, I walk in with like, I think it was like tea and biscuits or something. 
And everyone starts laughing. I'm like, what? They're like, nobody ever actually gets that. You actually paid attention. I'm like, well, wasn't that hard? I just got tea. Right. But it was this lesson of like, if you learn how to help other people and do what's needed without necessarily being asked or guided and figure it out, you're going to be okay. Even if it's something simple as getting tea and biscuits. So the chain of Syracuse people going to Wimbledon, I think we got up to like 14 or 15 people over the coming years that, that did it over time. Wow. So I come back after that. I actually get a job working in more boxing. One of the producers I worked with on that highlight show said to me, he's like, what do you do when you get back? I'm like, I don't know. I'm going to look for a job. He's like, well, I need a production assistant for this. He was doing like a, a highlight show that would then get shipped over to ESPN. Okay. That was going to be freelance and I didn't know where it was going to land. I was living at home in New Jersey with my folks and then commuting into New York. I do not recommend long commutes in your 20s. It's not the best idea. Oof. I don't know why I thought this was great. Chris had moved to D.C. I stayed in New Jersey, New York, and I got a job working for this commercial production company, also through a Syracuse alum. And so that job was a company called One Such Films. I should write a sitcom about it all these years later. Basically, it was three business partners that ran a very successful commercial production house with two sound stages, and they did a ton of food commercials, tabletop. Okay. So... There was this massive commercial kitchen between these two sound stages. And my job, very unglamorously, I might add, I was the receptionist. And let's not like call her that with anything else. I literally was answering phones all day long. Okay. There was no voicemail. So it would literally be like, uh, you know, one such film, please hold. One such film, please hold. May I help you? It was total like pay your dues kind of work. But what was funny about it was I literally sat. It was like a sitcom. I sat in the middle of all these crazy productions. So like one day it would be for like Applebee's. Another day there'd be like. 22 coolers rolling in because they're shooting something for friendlies. Another day, there'd be animal wranglers walking through and chickens getting lost oh and geez. things like that. It was just... Did you at least eat well in this position? Yeah. So we actually used to joke there should be a weigh-in because I sat next to craft services, also terrifying. So it was me, the hand model, um, who was awesome, and the craft services table would hang out. Like, that's where my little setup was. But yes, what was funny is like, you know, people can give you a hard time at chain restaurants, whatever. The guy who was, oh, he was a lovely guy. He was head culinary guy for Perkins Pancakes. Okay. Doesn't sound all that great, right? He was like CIA trained. He would do this crew meal every time they came to town and they would like line up for like days to come to this thing because he was so good and he was great. So anyway, that was a great place to learn humility, but just also learn how production worked and learn how pieces came together and how they worked with agencies and how all the things all kind of fit together. And so, like I said, a lot of unglamorous stuff, but also some funny, very good memories, too. It's WJPZ at 50. Hey, it's Jag. You're probably listening to this episode of the podcast because you know the person I'm interviewing. But one of the true joys of this project has been learning the stories of everyone in the WJPZ family. When you're done with this podcast, I'd encourage you to check out an episode with someone you don't know. You never know what you might have in common with your other WJPZ relatives. Looking back at half a century of broadcast excellence. This is WJPZ at 50. What was next after that? From there, this was like kind of late 90s in New York. So stuff was good and money was good and the internet hadn't quite taken off yet, but it was starting to. They were hiring a few new directors. The three guys who owned it represented seven or eight different commercial directors. And then they'd pitch all these agencies. So you have all these big agents coming in. Then they also said, well, we also should be doing stuff with music videos. And so they hired a guy to do that who was great. And he knew I was kind of like struggling at the front desk job that I wanted to get out of. And meanwhile, Chris, my husband, now husband, then boyfriend, had gone to D.C., gotten a great job. He was doing awesome because he's brilliant and awesome. But I was still answering phones. And I'm like, yeah. I'm the one with the good grades. You almost didn't graduate, yet you're doing so much better. Than I got so a master's degree in four years, damn it. And I'm answering phones. I'm answering phones well, but, you know, so... The new guy said, I need a production coordinator. Do you want to come do this? And they were like basically building on a new part of the building. I'm like, yeah, sure. So I ended up working on music videos for about two years. One of my better stories from that job. One of the directors they brought on to their roster was Alex Winter. Okay. You probably don't know who the name Alex Winter is, but when I tell you who he is, you're going to be like, oh. So you know Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure? Righteous. Not Keanu Reeves. Other guy. The other dude. The other dude. He was lovely. He was very nice. That was one of my first introductions to working with celebrities of like, first of all, when you see someone and they look familiar, you don't actually know them because you're like, no, no, I'm sure we've met. And he's like, no. And then finally, I'm like, oh, you're, you're Ted. Okay. <laughs> Bill. I forget which one he is. 
So I did that for a couple of years. I'd finally gotten to the point where Chris and I were like, all right, one of us has to blink. Like one of us has to move. And been there. Uh, it's hard. It's hard. And we are country mouse, city mouse. I could go elsewhere. He would not have liked New York at all, much as I would have loved to have dragged him there. So I was like, all right, I'll come down to D.C. for a few years. and You're coming back to New York with me. So great. That is 20 some odd years. I don't think we're going back. <laughs> but what ended up happening was when you leave your first job, remember the first time you left a job and you were like, you thought the world was going to end? First time I got let go or first time I left of my own volition? Because there's a difference. Either way. Yeah. Fair it enough. Could, okay. Kind of go either way. In this case, it's, it's leaving on your own and you sort of are like, I'm never going to work again. I'm going to let them down. Like, I look at it now. I mean, I had such a like not important job. <laughs> so not important. <laughs> but in my own mind, I needed a way to get out that gave me a good excuse that I wasn't just quitting. Yeah. So I called my friend at HBO that I used to work for and said, hey, remember the runner thing? I'll come back and do it again. And she's like, yeah, come on, let's go. So I went back to Wimbledon for a second time. This is where the sports guys are going to be like, seriously? And I overheard one of the guys who was doing graphics. Uh, I heard him talking about Arlington. I was like, what? Hold up, Arlington, Virginia or Texas? He goes, Virginia, why? Like, yeah. ah, I'm moving there when I get back. I don't know anybody. Could you help me? He's like, oh, you should meet my wife. She works at this company called ProServe. Now, there's enough sports guys who are listening to this who are like, seriously, you had no idea what ProServe was. Like, I did not. I knew nothing. It was a very well-known, maybe not large, very well-known sports agency, one of the very early original ones. Okay. If you watch Air, the movie that's out right now with Matt Damon. The Jordan movie, yeah. Mm -hmm. ProServe started Michael Jordan. Oh, wow. So I was like, okay, sure. So I go and I meet his wife, who was very nice, and she gives me a lovely inter informational interview, and we chat and have a whole conversation. Turns out his job gets relocated, so her job opens up. Huh. And they need to hire someone, like, right away. Wow. And I had just been in there, and they're like, you want to come talk to us about it? Sure. Knowing nothing of what I'm getting into. There was a thing called ProServe Television. The way sports television works in a lot of cases is there's a lot of production companies that feed into the big guys at the time. They feed into ESPN. They feed into NBC. Like, not the Super Bowl, but, like, the next tier down. Yeah. So they had all these um, professional tennis contracts. And so they had the rights to a number of ATP, men's professional tennis tournaments, and we would produce them for Fox Sports Net. Okay. When I joined, there was a couple other contracts. One of the ones I got assigned to was uh, the NCAA. Mm -hmm. We had the international rights for all the NCAA championships. Oh. Yes, international. So it wasn't like you'd see, you know, me on CBS. It was literally like me calling like Azerbaijan and being like, can you get the feed? Um, that kind of thing. But that first year, and we only had it that one year that I was there. It was like the last year they had it. Yes, all the championships from softball to, you know, hockey to whatever, but also maybe basketball. And so that was the only time in my life I got to go to the Final Four. Syracuse was not in it. That's okay. But it was really pretty amazing to work on that one. Like, that was a cool one to work on. So what I ended up doing, I was basically kind of like a production manager. I used to joke with, like, the crews as I worked with them later on that I was sort of like the den mother. Where I'm like, everybody get there. Everybody get your stuff done. Yep. Everybody get the sound and picture on the air. Everybody go home. Do not expense your parking tickets. Thank you. Yeah. This was like 98, 99. Before that dot-com bubble burst. The bubble was just taken off. Okay. This ties back to radio, oddly enough. All the deregulation was happening at this point in time. Yep. Starting in 96, yep. ProServe got sold within my first year. We would then be sold four times in five years. Jeez. So, like, literally, we'd be throwing out business cards. We'd be like, we're done. So it got sold to a company called the Marquee Group, which was creating this, like, sports agency, like, super unit. Then that got sold to Bob Sillerman of Radio Fame, who had a company called SFX. Okay, yeah. That eventually got sold to Clear Channel and spun off pieces of it. I think I'm getting this right. I may not be getting 100% right. Spun off to Live Nation. And so through all of this, every year we were like, well, something new. So kind of from that, I did production, but then I also got into a little bit of show development, which is what I was really excited about towards the end of my time there, right when all that stuff was happening. And again, this is when like the dot-com stuff was going crazy and everybody was getting crazy jobs every which way. It was just before it burst. So it was sort of a, a crazy time just to be working in general. Nobody will hold it against you for not getting every single buyout and iteration and company name I right don't. at that point, Jen, seriously. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so what's next? Again, more of how JPZ affects things in my life. Um, wow, this is like a therapy session. My boss in New York, when I was at the commercial production house, was very involved with women in film in New York. And when I was moving to D.C., she gave me good advice. She's like, you go find that chapter there and get to know people. Like, it's a way that you network. Okay. 
So I had marched in and as a volunteer got involved with a group called Women in Film and Video, which is the, a professional organization of about a thousand people here in D.C. And it's all film and television producers, as the name implies. So and mostly women, although we had plenty of guys, too, because it was you know an inclusive group before it's time. So I had been volunteering on their board, on its board, as I was starting to think about what I was going to do next. And so that's another point, too, just career wise. In all that sports production, I liked sports production. I like going to sports stuff, but I don't live and die by it the way you have to to be truly successful. Oh, sure. To be really good at it, you have to like live and die by it. And I remember sitting in the back of a production truck, like one of those 53 foot tractor trailers. My little perch was always in the back. It was really cold. (laughs) And I was sitting there and I remember looking at the benches in front of me and looking at our head producer, who was an amazing tennis producer. He loved it. And you could literally say like, hey, who won Nottingham in 1978? And he wouldn't even think. He'd be like, McEnroe. Yeah. Like he just threw it back at you. So I remember looking what he was doing. I said to myself, do I want his job? I do not want his job. I'm never going to be great at this. I'll be okay. I'm competent. I get sound and picture on the air. So that was my moment of like, all right, I got to find what I'm better at. Like what I really want to do. And so I was starting to kind of think that through. And that's when my friend who had become the volunteer president of this association, mind you, this association I was working for was two people. 100% of the staff was two people. Hmm. They had been through a couple of people as an executive director in like two years, and they needed someone who knew the organization, even if they weren't like a primo executive director, enter me. But she was one of the most incredible managers of people and leaders of people I've ever met. And so I literally sat with her. I was like, all right, look, if I take this job, do I get to follow you around for a year or two and learn how to do this? She's like, absolutely. Good. So I took a job. There was a bottle of wine involved, too. So anyway, I got this job. I go to run this nonprofit for three years tiny nonprofit. Our whole budget, I think, was like $338,000 a year. We had a staff of two, including me. Yep. And it was incredibly educational because it was really hard. It was hard work, but it was good because, again, taught you to bring different groups of people together. And so I did a lot of that. And that's what eventually led me to journalism. This is going to sound weird, but being chief cook, bottle washer, and PR person, I had to learn how to like pitch us as a story because that was some of the things I wanted. So I wandered in again, much like walking through those doors of JPZ. I walked through the doors of the Washington Business Journal and plunked myself down there. And they used to do a thing um, with the editor and the publisher that was sort of like, come get to know how to get your stories covered by us. Oh, wow. Okay. That sounds good. So I wandered in there. And my dear friend, now dear friend Beth, but editor at the time, this is the love of my life job. I was there for 14 years, not to spoil the story, but they were great because she was an editor who... She wouldn't say this, but the way she kind of did things was Jim Collins, the writer, the author, has a thing about get the right people on the bus, then figure out where they're going to sit. Okay. She was big about that. And that, to me, the people I've gone to work for are those people. They're the ones who, like, get you in and figure out what to do with you, even if you have a weird skill set like I do. They're like, come in. We'll figure it out. So I ended up just striking up a relationship with her, and we became friends, and I would send her things once in a while, and I think I was interviewed once. Nothing of it, but I mentioned to her at one point, like, I think I want to write, but I'm not really sure how to start. She's like, well, let's talk about that. And we did, and nothing really came of it. And then she calls me out of the blue one day. She's like, hey, you know a place you can talk? I said, yeah, yeah, what do you need? She's like, I had a reporter leave today. I need to hire somebody. I'm like, oh, I know some people. What do you want? She's like, you are not very smart. I'm talking about you. Like, (laughs) oh, okay. Again, this was thinking back to JPZ courage, I guess, the courage of JPZ that gives you, gift of courage. I take this job. And to this day, it's still like, I still like smile thinking about it because it was like, this feels like the most natural thing I've ever done to take this job. But I was terrified of taking this job (laughs) to the point where I remember asking her when I finally get the job and had an interview with our publisher, who again was a dear friend to this day, but he was scary at the time when I interviewed with him. Mm. And I remember telling her, I was like, am I going to be okay? Like, you know, I haven't worked for a newspaper, right? Like print people beget print people. You don't come in from not print. Yeah. She's like, you'll be fine. I'm like, I don't know any, how am I going to, she's like, you'll be fine. So literally the first time I had to get on the phone and interview a source, you would have thought I was going in front of Congress to testify because I was so <laughs> nervous and prepared. I had like one of those big binders. Like I looked like when somebody testifies in Congress, the big binder in front of oh, them. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I look like that because I was so nervous. And I look back now, I'm like, oh my gosh, it was ridiculous. But anyway, thus began the love of my life job because what was great, that was a very entrepreneurial place too. And what that basically means is that they're part of a bigger network of 43 papers around the country, 44 now. 44, huh? 44. It's a good number. Um, Every couple of years, I either 
made up a new job that we needed, that I saw we needed. I was like, can I try wow. this? And they'd be like, sure. Or something would happen. Like, for example, video was becoming hot within the print world because they saw like dollars attached to it. <laughs> and they looked at me, they're like, you do this. I'm like, I do not. I don't do that anymore. I'm out. And it was like the Godfather. You know, I, I thought I got out, but they pulled me back in. Yeah. So there I was suddenly teaching myself Final Cut Pro. And it was great. I loved it. Like, I found out I loved that, too. So that began 14 years of time there. So all kinds of iterations. I started as a feature writer. Then I did like a social media thing. It was still early days of social media. I don't even really get credit for that because I was not a great social media person. But from there... I started doing our back page, which is like our society grip and grin kind of section. That was great for networking. In DC, you don't say. Yeah, yeah, right? Exactly. And, and if you're the one taking the picture, they're like, sure, I'll be in your picture. Although, funniest part of doing that in DC, A, when you think you know somebody, but you do not, they're just famous. You learn that the hard way. Right. Because you're like, no, 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 we totally like, do we go to school together? Like, no, no, I'm just famous. Like, okay. <laughs> happened on more than one occasion joe lieberman i did that to him on, at dulles airport one time like were you like a professor family friend no, no vice presidential candidate that's what you are <laughs> and i started writing a column that was on networking that went on that page and that was like became 10 years of columns and then i started doing video production for our events because we do all these awards and that would be another part of it and then booking people into events that we would do and moderating some of the discussions and again this was like the most natural job i've ever had because it was literally talking to smart people all day long that wanted to talk to you for the most part. Yeah. Business journalism. I wish I would have known it was an option in college. It just never even occurred to me. It's such a great avenue if you are someone who's curious and likes to write and likes to learn. A friend of mine used to say, she's like, it's like getting a master's degree like on a daily basis. Yeah. One day I'd be talking about SEC regulations. The next day I'd be talking about what to put in your resume. You mentioned networking, and obviously that's a skill that was drilled into our heads both at Syracuse, <laughs> at Newhouse, at JPZ. But what's really interesting is a lesson here that I don't think we've covered in the podcast so far, Jen, and that is that you have these skills. I don't think I have a better word, but it might be dormant for a little bit. Ah, that's a good way to put it. Whether it's writing or production or whatever it is, like, oh, yeah, I did that for a while. But sometimes you're in a position where those dormant skills have to come back to the surface and they're still there. They're always there. It's like almost like riding a bike. You didn't forget it, but you end up in a position where you're still using up all those things that you learned could be 10, 20, 25 years ago. hundred percent. And if you would have asked me to write this stuff out, I never could have. But yeah, learning stuff from like Lynn Vanderhoek and Karen McGee at Newhouse and like how to network. Yeah. That saved me on more than one occasions working a red carpet like in D.C. for like a movie premiere because you have to suddenly talk to somebody. You have no idea who they are and you have to find something to talk about. Maybe it's the weather. Maybe it's what shoes they're wearing. You don't know. But finding that commonality and making the other person feel at home or kind of feel like they're having a real conversation, especially in a town like D.C., where we can be a little a little transactional at times. So if you actually strike up a real conversation with somebody, not even meaning to, but just are authentic, it is such a breath of fresh air. And also, other thing you learn, too, same thing, is look for the people that don't have that connection and bring them in. Like, you know, inclusivity is a buzzword now, yeah. but how many times at the radio station were we good about that? Like, it was one of the original, like, inclusive places because you'd be like, you want to go? Somebody sitting in a corner or just as an overnight shift or something like, hey, you're interested in this? And Maddie and Grace, the current PD and GM of the station, talked about it in their episode where, oh, hey, you like Taylor Swift? Hey, come on. Yeah, I mean, I talk about this a lot in my current job. Jeannie Shad and I actually were talking about this when we had a women's gathering at this year's banquet, which was great. And one of the things we talked about is the power of tapping someone on the shoulder. Like, think about the people in your career who you wouldn't have expected to have a major impact on you. But sometimes it was a simple gesture or a simple question of saying, like, Jag, like, you're really good at this podcasting thing. You ever think about doing that for a living? Like, how many times that we don't get outside of ourselves? We're in our own heads so often that when somebody asks you a question about you and makes you think about it or points out something you're good at that you have no idea you're good at, and we all have it. Yeah. It's just it's stuff that because it's easy to you. It seems like it's not a big deal, but you have the power to help people discover magical things about themselves. I love that. But it's true. Like, I see it every day. And like, as I get older, I still see it even more. But think about the people who've done that for any one of us. And if we can each pay that forward or pay that back, whichever which way it's going, <laughs> it really is. If my friend Beth hadn't said to me, no, I think you should come apply for this job, I would have never have done that. Right. And you don't know what you don't know. And you don't know what you're necessarily good at. You, know, you can figure out pretty quickly what you're bad at. Yeah. But it makes a huge difference and it helps people discover new things, which is awesome. 
I think on some level, we've all had imposter syndrome in some way, shape, or form. 100%. And we talk about anybody who's done TV or radio, even if it's just a JPC, the skill set that you have, the things you know how to do, you don't realize how many things you've learned how to do and can be good at it. I feel like that's come up a lot in this podcast. 110%. And I think of someone like Scott McFarlane, like Scott McFarlane, whom I love and adore, him and Lisa both. He's like a Dion. Like, they're just brilliant, gifted people. Yes. But even he had to be behind a microphone for the first time. And the number of times when you were sitting there at four in the morning and you're trying to hit the mic button and you're terrified and you think you're going to pass out at JPZ was no different than the first time I had to stand up in front of a crowd of 500 people and moderate a panel discussion with all these people who were like way smarter than I'll ever be. Nobody had ever done that a first time. The only way to do it is to do it. That to me, facing that terrifying microphone and the mic button, which whether or not you actually got it right the first time or not, or second. Or We've had many stories of alumni who have not had the best first break ever or the first break didn't go over the air for whatever reason. Or And so you just got to remember, like, everything is like that. I wrote a column one time about lassoing the butterflies. Or no, it's not even lassoing them. Butterflies in your stomach, they're going to exist no matter what you do. I don't care how good you are. They're always going to exist. You got to get them to fly in formation. Ah. If you can get them to fly in formation, then you can control it. And honestly, the fear keeps you honest anyway. You need a little bit of that. But the dormant stuff, I think, is important, too. And also being in places that feel like, this is going to sound wrong, feel like boot camps, but feel like intense. Like the station was intense. The business journal for me was intense. Like I didn't know AP style. I was in a room full of people that were AP style experts. Right. I was like, I don't know. And now I espouse that what I do all the places because it also helps me talk to reporters, not AP style necessarily. But because I did that job for so long, I know what they're looking for in a way that if somebody hadn't done it, just you wouldn't know it. Two quick yes or no questions. Yes. Double space after a period when typing. Absolutely not. Oxford comma. No. We are no longer friends. I know. I know. My brother, my brother has disowned me over the Oxford comma. <laughs> That's an AP style thing. I'm team AP style. I can't help it. Fair enough. And the two spaces, the two spaces is something that actually there's an age divide. You can tell how old somebody is if they if they learned how to. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. It's been nice knowing you. I've really enjoyed it. <laughs> All right. So Washington Business Journal, dream job. You would think you'd stay there forever, but you didn't. I kind of did. 14 years is kind of forever. Okay, fair enough. So what basically happened, I would have stayed there forever, honestly. Back to radio, another saving grace of JPZ. As I kept changing jobs within the Business Journal, we had a partnership for 20 some odd years with WTOP 103.5 FM. Mm -hmm. If you are someone who lives or has ever lived in the Washington, D.C. region, you know this is this massive news talk station that everybody has on in their cars at all times because traffic and weather on the 8s is the only thing that's going to save you from D.C. traffic. Yes. So it's this powerhouse. It's got something like 1.5 million listeners, I think, something along that line. And so we had a partnership with them forever where we basically loaned out two reporters to do money news updates, which were consumer financial news updates, talking stock market, talking stock numbers, talking business stories twice an hour, four times an hour, depending. And we did that forever. Mm -hmm. And so what ended up happening was I really liked working with those guys. And this one was like a really great mentor to me, like my Obi-Wan. But I told him, like, I used to do this. And he's like, OK, sure. <laughs> I'm like, no, 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 I did. Kind of. Not quite this way. But yeah, you know. So there was an opportunity. The news director at TOP at the time wanted to bring in some more female voices. And she had heard me. Our reporter used to do interviews with business journal reporters about stories we had done. And she heard me doing one of these, just like a live hit kind of thing. And she said, who is that? He goes, well, Jen, she works with us here. Okay, well, I have this project. Maybe she could help voice some of it. So I started doing that. Then there was a change, and we needed somebody to fill in, essentially, for the morning version of the reporter. They kind of said, would you be willing to do this for a little while? I'm like, yeah, I'd love to. Are you kidding? Sure. So that transitioned me for about a year and a half, two years, um, before we ended the contract, unfortunately, because it was still, it was such a great partnership. But I was the morning drive money news reporter for WTOP. So the way it would work is I would leave my house at 4.30 in the morning, get to the station at 5, be on the air by 5.25, and then work there through about 10.30 doing two and four hits an hour with stock updates and jobs updates and things like that. Then I'd jump back in my car, drive back over to the business journal and do the other half of my job. It was sort of a split job. Like I sort of was like a, a hybrid person for a while. So like a split shift, like AM drive and PM drive almost. <laughs> sort, of, sort of, sort of like that. Yeah. But it was great because my, my older two kids were small at the time. And it was actually an awesome schedule for that because I was done by like two o'clock, three in the afternoon. Got it. But what was so great about that was I ended up on the biggest station in D.C. 
and don't think this wasn't terrifying. You want to talk about terrifying. <laughs> I still, if you actually listen to my first hit, which I don't even know if I still have, you could literally hear, because that was my script, because my hand was shaking oh, so badly. Geez. I was so nervous. The other thing is, when I get nervous, I speak quickly to begin with. When I get nervous, it goes up by about 90%. Oh, that's an East Coast thing. If I get nervous, I start dropping my eyes like I'm back in Boston. Yeah. Mine, you just can't even hear my R's because I've gone through them. (laughs) So I was part of two incredible newsrooms at the same time. And I learned so much. These are people who'd been literally one of the people there. He was celebrating his 50th, 50th anniversary with WTOP because he'd been on the air that long. It was like a legacy station. So anyway, one of the best lessons I learned from there was the news director. When I was trying to learn this and I was not great coming out of the gate. I was trying, but I, I wasn't as smooth as I should be. And at one point I was in her office and she's air checking me and we're going through it. And she, at one point I'm like, I don't know. And she goes, look, Jen, it's time in the chair. It's just time in the chair. Yeah. Got to put the reps in. I still use that reference to this day when I feel like I cannot do something. I'm like, time in the chair. And just be patient. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, I would have stayed at the Business Journal forever. We ended that contract. And then I was in a new role that was... <laughs> It was a title I made up. I was editor at large. There was someone in D.C. who had that title who was cool. I'm like, I don't think a good title. Nice. And so I became editor at large, which made me sound like I was like sneaking up and attacking people. But um, (laughs) it was honestly, you know what it was? Remember how we had the broadcast consultant role at the station? Yes. I was essentially the broadcast consultant. I love it. I put panels together. I booked people. I did that kind of I I helped edit the paper. I was not the editor in chief. I would have been terrible at that. I was one of the editors, but that was part of the role. I'd read a column. It was like a really nice mix of things. So it got to a point where I was at some point, I was going to have to do something new and I'd run out of jobs to make up. And so I kind (laughs) of, in 2018, sort of had a heart to heart with myself. And I was like, all right, I'm going to do one of three things. And it wasn't quite this clear at the time, but this is where it came out. I was either going to try to find a national journalism job and trade up, you know, something like the Wall Street Journal or the Washington Post, what have you. Door number two was strike out on my own and do something, whether it's entrepreneurial, whether it was freelance writing, whatever it might be. Door number three was get a corporate job. Okay. And part of this was intriguing because I had written about business. I know business, right? How hard is that? Um, so <laughs> in that time frame, when I'm kind of grappling with this, what am I going to do when I grow up thing, the job at Hilton showed up. And part of my, part of my rules at this point in my life were, had to be a company that I knew I would be passionate about what they did. That's from my old production lesson of I'd never be good at sports. Yep. So I had to come up with something I'd like. Couldn't make widgets. Had to be something interesting. Hilton, check. Two, it had to be not a terrible commute because around here in D.C., that is a make or break part of your job. Oh, yeah. It was on the right side of the Potomac for me. I'm like, cool, we're good. And three, it was like, is it a place I can grow? And so I got the job and I joined basically the communication staff at Hilton. So for the whatever time we're on now, fifth or sixth time, I'm changing my career again. And it was, God bless my JPZ experience, because it was a very humbling first six to 12 months because I thought I knew what I was doing because I'd been a reporter talking to all these people. Right. I had no idea what the job actually was. And then when I landed it, I was like, well, this is hard. (laughs) This is really hard. And so it took a while. Yeah, so I've been at Hilton now. I'm now in corporate communications. So basically what I do is help tell the story between, we have 19 plus brands. I help tell the story of the positive things between all those brands. An example. I do a lot of work with our HR group and our workplace culture. We're known for being one of the best places to work in the country. I was ranked by Fortune, et cetera. We just rolled out a new campaign called Every Job Makes the Stay, which is dovetailed to our marketing campaign, which is Hilton for the Stay. And it was rolling it out and trying to get people to cover that. It's pitching our executives and landing profiles of them. It's Talking about um, when a new brand launches, helping with some of that. So it's a, it's a lot of those pieces. I do a lot of work with ESG, so environmental sustainability work, a lot of our workplace culture work. Like I talk to a lot of workplace culture reporters about what's happening with return to office and how do we factor in. And then helping tell the stories of what our company does, which are our team members are these incredible people that deliver awesome experiences for others. And that's what hospitality is at the end of the day. Hilton has so many brands. I would I couldn't name them off the top of my head. <laughs> How do you work with all those different brands? And I'd imagine there's a different target audience for each brand. And that's only one piece of the whole company. Like when you actually get down to it, that's what was so hard. I was used to a smaller environment where my approval process used to be, I'd look up over my cube at my editor. Hey, Doug, I'm going to write a column about this. You cool? Yeah, sounds good. All right. <laughs> Approved. 
when I got to Hilton, I'm like, why are there 50 people on my email? Wait, now there's 75. Why are there 75 people on my email? Because you are trying to coordinate a lot. Talk about flying in formation. A lot of different objectives with everybody who has very different perspectives. Like I'm in corporate communications, so I, I work with earnings, like when we do our earnings every quarter um, and reporting that way. It's um, objectives for the brand, it's objectives for consumers, it's objectives from marketing. So trying to get all those pieces together and get everybody kind of speaking on the same things and the same message in a way that is good for the company, which at the end of the day is what we're trying to do. Right. We want people to like, when you hear Hilton, be like, I should stay there. That's our job. At the end of the day, that's what we got to do. Fair enough. And there's lots of ways to do that. It's really been interesting going through your career and all the twists and turns. And you've done such a wonderful job because you're a professional broadcaster, you're a professional reporter, you're a professional storyteller of weaving all these lessons of WJPZ, you know, through every twist and turn of your journey. I do want to ask you if there are any funny stories from your time at the station that we haven't covered yet that I want to wrap up with. Oh, goodness. Oh, my gosh. There's so many. Um, you would think these would come to mind. Sometimes it's just kind of a blur. But you don't have these in your notes, too? <laughs> those, I don't write those down, Jag. They might be found. I live in D.C. Ah, true. I don't have specific moments. What I always loved, the pieces I always loved, were watching people just learn, like work together. You know, Kefele was there at the same time as me, um, Charlie Bobbish. I'm trying to think a few of the others. Like it was a cast of characters. Like we were a sitcom in our own right. Isn't there a story about a UTV sitcom somewhere? Oh, yeah. Okay. All right. So fine. You did your homework. Uh, but that's UTV, so I don't have to talk about it. No, no. I need to hear this from your perspective because one of your, uh, one of your co-stars <laughs> mentioned this. Thanks, Dion or Donovan. I can't remember who's guilty of this. So, yes, there were a few of us in that spirit of trying lots of things, freshman year. We were part of a very short-lived UTV sitcom called Roommates. Donovan apparently has the blackmail that we once heard at a banquet that it does exist somewhere. Um, it was not very good, but it was a lovely group of people that worked on it, and it was a lot of fun. So, yes, there was a group of us that were the actors, and that involved Donovan, it involved Dion, it was involved me, involved my roommate, Julia, and Alpha Fee. There's a few other people in that too. But yes, it was uh, it was a good experience to learn how hard it is to do multi-camera production. Fair enough. And yes, there are some good stories from that. Try to think if there's anything. Like for me, you know what it is? I think I have more funny stories in a weird way from the Alumni Association weekends. My friendships at JPZ started when at the station, but they really kind of like grew to like adulthood as an adult oddly. And so to me, that's some of the most special moments. Jen, you have had such an amazing career in business, around business, learning about business. I want to ask you for like advice for alumni, young alumni, students. I don't even know what to ask you specifically for advice. So I'm just going to say advice, question mark. <laughs> like any good interviewer, just ask a simple question and then let them talk. Um, so let's see if I had to do like my very short, top bulleted list of best pieces of advice. I would say learn to be adaptable and be flexible in that and keep an open mind. When you're coming out of college, you don't know the number of jobs and career paths that are out there that are going to be awesome for you. And you have no idea what they are yet. So you have to find them. And that involves keeping an open mind and asking a lot of questions. Mm -hmm. Be curious. I was just having this conversation with someone the other day. When I hire people, I look for two major qualities, enthusiasm and curiosity. Yes. I can teach you everything else. Those two things, you can develop them, but if you don't show up with at least something, it's not going to work. And so I would take someone who's curious and enthusiastic over any MBA any day of the week. And then have the confidence to raise your hand and tell people what you want to do and what you like and ask questions. Like you are going to find things that you are better at than you ever realized. And like getting some good guidance on that as you go, I think is huge. And then finally, and I wrote about this one time, I wish I remember which student it was. It was a student years ago who had said when I was up for an alumni banquet, she was talking to a group. She's like, yeah, you know, I never had the confidence to make mistakes before I worked at WJPZ. Wow. That is huge. The confidence to make mistakes. It's the whole thing. It's what allows us to strive and grow and dream and do big things. And if you can just give yourself that and have it and go for it, whatever it might be, you will far succeed 
anything you're even thinking of right now. That is an amazing place to leave it. You are a wealth of knowledge. I feel like there's a million other questions I could ask you, but we've already gone a little bit long because you have so many amazing things to say. Thank you so much for your time today. Jenny's Connor, class of 1995-ish. Uh, we appreciate you being on the podcast. Thank you very much, Jack. It was great to be here. I really appreciate it. The WJPZ at 50 podcast is created entirely by the staff and alumni of the world's greatest media classroom. It's hosted by John Jag Gay, class of 2002. Editing help from James Bames Grundy III, class of 2020. Imaging by Maureen Cooper, class of 1999. And Ed Lacombe, class of 1985. Podcast artwork by Marty Dundix, class of 2001. Follow WJPZ at 50 on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you're listening right now.